John 17. We'll be taking up the text in verse 14. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Jesus, still in the midst of his prayer, praying to the Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Do not pray, then, that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Thus far God's word. Let us pray. Lord our God, as we continue in our worship, we rejoice that you are a God not far off but near at hand. You are a God not silent, but indeed you have spoken. You have spoken in these latter days in your Son, in former times through the prophets, men of old, but now you have spoken through your Son who continues to speak the living word, even the holy living Logos of God. Lord, as we hear our Redeemer pray, Lord, give us understanding and comfort and encouragement in what we hear, that we might be equipped to live before you in our day. Lord God, be glorified and blessed by your Spirit, the proclaiming of your word and our hearing of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've been declaring, as I consistently do, the truth of God concerning who and what we are as the children of Adam. We are all sinners. On our own merits, standing alone and apart, we are condemned and guilty before the Lord God Almighty. Left to ourselves, we would perish in this sin and iniquity, suffering the wrath of God for all eternity. But God... But God has provided salvation. Even as we've just heard from Isaiah, the promise of that coming salvation, now we, we look at it as God who has provided that salvation. He has accomplished what was foretold by the prophets. Indeed, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is a God through a suffering Savior who saves sinners and brings them to God. This is a cause for great rejoicing. Oh, that our hearts be filled with joy and great joy that we have so great a salvation accomplished by so great a Savior. And indeed, in a manner that was not, it was beyond our finding out. Uh, there was no way that any man would have conceived of this salvation, but it was God who did it. God sending his Son, and the Son then revealing the Father to all who believe. The results then in a remarkable, radical transition for the person who has faith and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. All who believe have a change in position. Jesus rescues sinners then out of a kingdom of darkness, and he brings them into a kingdom of light. Jesus rescues those who are dead in sin, and he gives them eternal life. Jesus rescues those who are headed to hell, and he gives them a new eternal home in heaven. What a marvelous change in position. This is what God has accomplished and so much more. And Jesus has celebrated and declared this in his prayer to the Father. He has acknowledged that those he has, the Father has given to him. They belong to God as the Creator, and as the Creator he gave them then to his Son who came into the world to save sinners. That night Jesus would be arrested, would be led away and crucified on a cross, 
suffering the wrath of God due to those whom the Father had given to him, that by his death he would secure salvation for the ones the Father has given him. So these people are a gift then to Jesus from the Father. And they became both the people of God and the people of the Son. And the Good Shepherd, as he said back in chapter 10, was about to lay down his life for his sheep as we find ourselves in the midst of this night before the Passion unfolds. All this speaks positively of who Jesus is praying for. He's praying for a people given to him by the Father. The eleven men with him, as well as those who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because of their testimony, they belong to Jesus, and Jesus belongs to them. My friends, think of that. We belong to Jesus, and Jesus belongs to us. And therefore, we belong to God, and God belongs to us. God, the Creator, is our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. What a glorious position to be in. What a glorious relationship to have, eternal and everlasting. We come now to Jesus making another petition for those whom the Father has given to him. That petition arises or grows out of the reality that his people uh, have a, a different position, a different position in relation to the world. We could say, as we've been considering the position that we have in Christ, the positive aspects, uh, the positive transformation that God has accomplished. But now Jesus looks at a negative position, a, a negative reality, as he puts it in his prayer. They are not of the world. The reality of this negative relationships brings then Jesus to petition the Father on the behalf of his people. We're going to use three main points this morning. The Christian's position, Christ's third petition, and we're going to consider some marks of Christ's church. So our focus will be the Christian's relationship to the world and Jesus' design for the Christian while living in the world. We'll also, as I said, discover some marks of the true church. So we begin with the Christian's positions. We've, we've looked at the positive even in the introduction, just uh, quickly reviewing. Previously, uh, they're, they're declared to be in Christ. That's a very positive thing. Uh, they've been given by God to Christ. They've been welcomed by Christ. They've been redeemed by Christ. They have been secured by Christ for all eternity. Your heart should be rejoicing. Just think of this. Man, this is glorious. What a glorious position was God's done. Can we get wearied of this? You know, we stole him. Tell me the old, old story. This is the truth. My friends, there is no greater place to be than to be in Christ. Apart from that, there's no life. But to be in Christ is to have life and to have it forevermore. But there's a consequence in relation to the world. There's a negative aspect of this marvelous positive position that we have we're in the world but we're not of the world and therefore the world hates us this has been so from the beginning remember Cain a man with no faith a, a man living unto himself and according to his own appetites living according to the lie of the devil that he could be God has a brother Abel who loves God and is walking before God and worshiping God from the heart in spirit and in truth because Abel's deeds were righteous and made him look bad. And so Cain rose up and murdered his brother. 
So this, this contrast, this uh, conflict between the people of God and the world, it's been so from the beginning. It was, it's the great battle that we talked about in Genesis, the, the two threads running down through the course of history, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But it's not just because of what Christians do. It's because of who we are and whose we are. This is not new territory. If we look back at John chapter 15, verse 18, we find these words. Jesus already talked about this. He's talked to them about this reality. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you keep my word, they will keep yours also. So here is this reality. Uh, Jesus taught this on the Sermon of the Mountain. Uh, when they was dealing with the Beatitudes, blessed are you if men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of against you falsely for my sake. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Rejoice. Isn't that amazing? Persecution. And what does our Savior say? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. And so this is the reality. Now, Jesus, having taught this, he prays about it. This is we see here in this text that how the world treats the Christian the world hates us. Each week, your elders and leading in our corporate prayer, our time of pastoral prayer, we pray for the persecuted church. Why is that? Because of this reality. We're in the world, and the world hates us. And we pray, even as Jesus taught us to pray, for the Father's favor be upon his people, that the Father would keep his people in the world. My friends... And young people particularly, even you young children, do not miss this. The world is not your friend. That bears repeating, my friends, if you belong to Christ, indeed you do. All of you are here are, are members of the visible church. You're God's people. The sign and the seal of the covenant is upon you. You belong to Christ. The world is not your friend. The world is your enemy. And indeed, the world would seek to do you harm and destroy you. The world wants to derail you from your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't expect the world to love you. The world hates our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the world hates those who belong to him. Now this truth runs right through this passage. You look again at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And in verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You hear the reputation? This is a point. Jesus is, uh, in, in a sense, belaboring. He's focused on this. He knows that he's praying while he's still in the world with these men, that they would hear this prayer, that it would be written and inspired in the record here, that we would hear today. This is a reality. What's changed? As I, I point out, Jesus has covered this with his disciples before. What's changed is this. Prior to this, the Jesus, was, you know, Jesus was telling his disciples this reality. He was teaching them this reality. But now what's happening? In their presence, Jesus is praying for them to 
the Father in his prayer, interceding for them and for the church that would be built based on the testimony of them. Jesus is praying for them. That's pretty important, isn't it? If Jesus has taught about this, and now we hear Jesus praying about this, this is very important material. And again, it, to warn us, more than ever, we, I mean, we always say that, you know, every generation seems like this is the worst generation. We look at the culture like it couldn't be any worse. It was never this bad in the past. It's always been bad. But we live in this moment. And in this moment, we need to understand, not just young people as I addressed before, but all of us, the world hates us. The world absolutely hates us and desires that we be destroyed. But Jesus has prayed for us. He has prayed for us based on this reality. He's prayed to the Father in light of this negative position. Before we move on, just three applications, three don'ts. First one, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. This is a reality. It's non-negotiable. It's not going to change. It hasn't changed since Jesus prayed 2,000 years ago. As long as the world endures, the church will be not of the world. Don't be surprised that this is so. Secondly, don't be deceived. We're going to deal with that more in a moment. Don't be deceived by the world. Don't fall into the traps as the world might try to cozy up alongside you and win you over and carry you away. This is the Proverbs opens addressing the young man. The father saying, you know, beware of the young men that come and say, throw in your lot with us. We'll go rape, pillage, and punish, punger. We'll have a great load of booty and we'll share it all with one another. Don't be deceived. And particularly I would say, and not just the young people, don't be deceived by the messages of social media. There's so much that is fault. I saw a woman showed how easy it is to take and use AI and create a person. Begin watching the, the little short clip, and here's this young man talking, and it's her voice, but it sounds like a young man, and moves along, and then the digital to digital changes. Like, no, this is actually who's talking to you. I've used this tool and this tool to create this person that doesn't exist to look this way because of this. And then I've taken my own voice and I've used this tool to manipulate and modify it so it sounds this way. And what you're seeing is not real. And how much of that is being pressed upon us? The world wants to capture our attention. Oh, it's all rather exciting. The social media is it's filled with one reel after another. It's so easy to flip through them. I know. Next thing you know, an hour is wasted. Don't be deceived by the world. And then building on that, don't be drawn in. That's the next step, being deceived and then drawn in, throwing in, going in, going along. Beware. The world is not our friend. We're not of the world when we belong to Jesus. He's purchased us out of the world to be a people, unique. That brings us to our second point, which is looking at Christ's third petition. Jesus makes five petitions in his high priestly prayer. Four of these petitions are on the behalf of the church. The first one is for himself. We saw that in the first five verses. Jesus petitions the Father that the Father would restore his glory, that the glory that he has with the Father that's been veiled by his humanity as he's completing his work, even as he's carrying out his work, 
though it seems completely nonsensical to the world, as Jesus is carrying out his work, going to the cross to save sinners, he shows forth the glory of God to save people that do not deserve to be saved. But he prays, Lord, Father, restore my glory, that glory which I have with you from all eternity. May it be seen. And indeed it is fulfilled as the Gospels proclaim. Even this generation, these men, they've seen the glory of God as they see the resurrected Christ and as he ascends to the right hand of the Father and as Jesus rules and reigns and he sees his, his spirit at work in them. The glory of Christ is being revealed. We are here this morning because the glory of Christ has been revealed to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his glorious good news. That was his first petition. His second petition was, in verse 11, keep through your name those whom you have given me. It relates to this context of being in the world but not of the world. Uh, this petition, the third petition, builds on that. But he's prayed, keep them, preserve them. It's a, it's a prayer for the preservation of the church. And what was the promise of Christ after Peter has given the good testimony? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And on this rock, the testimony of who Christ is, I will build my church. And then Jesus says, and not even the gates of hell shall prevail against it. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit involved this. Jesus prays, keep these whom you have given me. Keep them through your name. That is all that you are. Keep and preserve the church. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are working in absolute harmony and concert together as one God for the preservation of the church. Drawing from this, building on this, the third position that Jesus has uh, gives is uh, for the holiness of his people. We see that in verse 17 or 15, I pray that you would keep them from the evil one. In 17, sanctify them by your truth. Keep safe from the world and the evil one and sanctify. And I'm going to use this word, our people. Jesus is praying, but in the earlier in his prayer, uh, he's mentioned how they're your people. You've given them to me. And if my people are your people, these are our people. We belong to our triune God. And thus the title of the sermon The hatred of the world for God's people is a very real threat. In John 16, Jesus told them that his departure would result in the world rejoicing while they were weeping. Again, that great contrast between those who belong to Christ and those who do not. The world delights in what causes us sorrow. And the world rejoices, or sorrows, and that which brings us great joy. Because we have different priorities in the world. We have different priorities and affections than the world. That's why we need to be reminded, as we have been already. The Christian, we, were once in the world. Now, there are many of you covenant children here this morning that by God's grace and in his good providence, you're not out in the world. You're in a Christian home. You're in a Christian family where the scriptures are revered, where Christ is set forth as a king, uh, where week by week you come to the worship of the living God. Um, you are most blessed forever because of this, that you've been brought from the earliest days of your life into the covenant community of God's people. But some of you here were once in the world. 
And all of us, even if we're in the church, we, and we live in the world, and you know, apart from Christ in us, we're affected by the world. And because of our flesh, we tend to live like the world. We have manifestations of ungodliness in our lives. We bear fruit of unrighteousness. But now we are redeemed. We've been born again. We've been born from above. The old ways are gone. This is what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. New birth in the Lord Jesus Christ is brought about by the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus taught Nicodemus in chapter 3. And the result is that we have new priorities new values. We set our affections on new things. These things are a threat to the world. But there's an aspect of our flesh, indeed not just an aspect, our flesh in the whole is still drawn to, wants to live after, wants to walk in the manner of the world, wants its, its appetites, its lust and its affections gratified, which is why Jesus tells us we must put to death the deeds of the flesh. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 7, that my flesh wants to go this way, and the Spirit wants to obey God. And there's this war within me. The good that I would do, I do not do, and the very evil that I hate, I find myself doing. So we have that internal battle. That is the reality of the Christian life. And thus we need the Spirit, and we need the Word to govern and direct us. But the world is all on and all in for us to follow after our flesh. And that was our old way. That was our old bent. That was our old habits. But we're new creatures in Christ. And so in Christ, we must live to the glory of God. And the world is not going to encourage us in the pursuit of that. We have a light from Christ, shining before men. The world wants to snuff out that light, even as Cain snuffed it out in his brother Abel. And as will happen today, we have brothers and sisters who the light of Christ is shining forth from in the world will snuff out that light. The good news is they will be delivered out of the hand of the world and they'll be immediately with the Father. They'll be in glory. And so it is a reality, and Jesus prays for us in the context. So there is this threat of physical harm from the world. And the Father, Jesus prays to the Father that he would keep us, that he would protect us in this reality because the world hates us. But even as I've kind of I've already alluded to, there's the spiritual dangers. Not just the physical harm from the world, but the spiritual corrupting influence of the world around us. Jesus says, it makes this clear, keep them from the evil one. Just a matter of a few minutes ago, we prayed the Lord's Prayer. What was one of our petitions? Young people, you remember, you're, you're learning that. Many of you have learned that. We pray, deliver us from the evil one. And that's what Jesus is saying right here. He says, deliver them, keep them from the evil one. The assaults of the evil one come against each of us every day. In Ephesians um, 6, Paul refers to the fiery darts of temptation and discouragements that come our way, and how the Lord has given us the shield of faith, that they would be quenched. There's individual temptations to sin, and to doubt, and to compromise. These things come at us from 
not only the world, but the devil's minions in the world. And so these assaults are upon us, and Jesus prays that the Father would keep us. There's a greater temptation for the church, as well as us as individual members, even than this persecution, the physical persecution, and, and the fiery darts of temptation. Real as those things are, there's a greater temptation. The evil one desires and designs to corrupt the whole church by infiltrating with worldliness. When the church becomes worldly, we lose our focus in preaching and proclaiming of the gospel and making of disciples. We're aware of this, the church, the visible church in our land, even around the world, it's a mixed multitude. There's, there's a, um, a massive movement of those who put themselves forth as Christian, as the church, who are engaged in a prosperity gospel. It is the bane and the plague where the church is growing in the southern hemisphere. Amongst the people who are impoverished, and they're being told to follow Jesus, and, and you can have wealth and riches in abundance. Even as Western Christians, we'll put that in quotes, come into their midst and live in this abundance. Infiltration of worldliness in an ungodly message. But there's also the danger, and I think this is a real and present danger for the church in our land right now, of being caught up in political matters. It's fine for us as individual citizens, Christian citizens, to engage in politics, even to run for office and hold office. But the church has a different role than what we have as individuals. Very rarely the church, the Westminster Confession, recognizes that from time to time it may be necessary for the church to petition the civil magistrate on matters that directly affect the church. But here's the point, and here's, here's a way that the evil one would... Um, capture and lead the church away is to be engaged in politics, to align with a political party. Praise God, you know that this pulpit is not about that and that our elders are not about that. You can have private conversations with them, seek their advice and counsel, that's perfectly fine. But the church is not here to tell you to vote this way or that way or to run with this party or that party. That is a great danger that dilutes the gospel, that undermines the effectiveness of the church. So we see in, in John's gospel, what do we got the Pharisees and the Sadducees, political parties. And where's the gospel in the visible church? It's gone. It's not present, even in Israel in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ, because they compromise the evil one designs to do this. Another way that the evil one undermines the Christian is materialism. Listen to me carefully here. Is it your aim to have peace? Maybe you think of the political environment. You just you want everything to calm down. You, just, you want to have peace so you can live your life, best life now? You, know, just, you want to make it on to retirement, be able to, to enjoy the, the ease of retirement and so forth? Or is it your aim to tell those who are perishing in sin the good news of the gospel? What is your great burning desire? Do you desire that people would have peace with God or that you can just... Live your final days in peace. Are you looking more forward to retirement than to heaven? I remember hearing some conference speakers actually some years ago that this has become the great substitute for the American for American people who 
uh, once longed for heaven, looked to heaven, had a hope in heaven, and, and now we substitute a retirement. People don't believe in a heaven. They don't believe in an afterlife. And so their goal is just to get to the enough money to get the retirement years so they can live heaven now, you know, whether it's the golf cart or the boat or whatever it may be. Our longing and our hope should be with Christ and to see that others would be evangelized and go to heaven as well. The evil one is happy to infiltrate the church with a message of materialism and misplaced priorities. The evil one also works to ensnare the church with a dozen dangers, entertainment, consumerism, popularity. There's a great danger if our shepherds fall because fallen shepherds result in scattered sheep. So Jesus prayed that the Father would keep us from these things. And how is it that we're kept from these things? He says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. What is the defense? What is the bulwark? What is the shield against all the assaults and the assailants of the evil one and the world and even our own flesh? We have been called to be holy. Holy unto our God. Jesus prays that would be the case. Sanctify means to set apart, to be set apart from ordinary to holy use. You remember that when the instructions were given to Moses for the building of the tabernacle, and once it was all done, there's all these articles, articles that were built and crafted by men filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet that was not enough. God gave Moses acting as, as a Christ figure, to go and take blood and to anoint each of the articles according to God's instruction, to set them apart from ordinary use to holy use, uh, from common use to be used in the worship of God, so that all of the tabernacle and all of the furniture was unique and holy. And even the anointing oil, God says, you shall not use this for any other purpose. The oil of anointing was set apart because God is communicating in that that he is holy. What is it that God is holy, holy, holy? He's completely other. He's completely unlike us. And so often we, we imagine God in our minds as he's like this or that. He is not like anything that we can imagine. He is God above, altogether holy and pure and completely separate and distinct from whatever we can imagine. And we need to accept and receive how he reveals himself. And this holy God did not just save us to keep us out of hell, to bring us out from under his wrath. He didn't just save us to take us to heaven. Those things are true. He has removed us in Christ out from under his wrath, and he will take us home to heaven. This is the promise of Jesus. I'll come again, and where I am, there you may be with me also. But God saved us that he would then work in us to be holy. Now, when we are justified in the righteousness of Christ, we receive it by faith, we are declared righteous, and the holiness of Christ is upon us. But it's not enough. God would have us live holy lives, walk out holiness because it's recorded in Leviticus and repeated by Peter in First uh, Peter 1, or, or chapter 2. We, we were there back during the pandemic. We are to be holy to the Lord. For without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. Sanctify them by your truth. God has called us as we live in the world to not live like the world. We're to be unlike the world. We're to be other than the world. We belong to God. 
Let's think of it this way. I've got many friends that labor in the inner city. That's that's the environment they've come from, and you know downtown Manhattan and all that. They're completely comfortable there because it's just a lifestyle that they're familiar with. Drop me down in there, I would be so out of place, so lost, and so confused. I would feel like an absolute stranger, not in my element. How much more so if we arrive in heaven with no experience in holiness? Everything about heaven is holy. It is a dwelling place of God. Holy, holy, holy. And if that's not something we're acquainted with, we've not walked in, we've not lived in, we will feel out of place. We will be uncomfortable. We will not want to be there. Well, the reality is, without that holiness, you shall not see the Lord. God redeemed us to be holy, to bring us back into fellowship with our God. Back to communion with him. Because remember, that's what Adam had in the garden. And when he sinned, he was put out. He and Eve were put out because they were unholy. They were sinners. And yet God had a plan. He announced that there would be the seed of the woman who would come in the fullness of time and who would break the bondage of sin, pay the penalty for sin, and purchase a people unto God to bring us back into that communion and fellowship with God. But my friends, what we have in Christ Jesus is better than what Adam had. Because in Christ. We can't fall away from it. We didn't earn it. It's a gift from God that we would walk in holiness. You remember we we recite the Heidelberg in that second one we say, you know, what has God given whereby I may know these things? Well, first he's given me the law that I may know my sin, my need of a Savior. Secondly, he's given me the Holy Gospel that I would see the Savior and believe in him. And then thirdly, what does he require me? That I would live a holy life as revealed in the law. It's the third use of the law. Jesus is praying the Father that he would sanctify us, that we would live and walk before him in holiness, not as the way to heaven. We're justified by faith in Christ alone. It is his righteousness that speaks on our behalf. But as a redeemed people, we're called to holiness. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We need the word, and that brings us to our third point the marks of Christ's church. There are six marks in Jesus' prayer. We've moved past some of them already, but they're joy, mission, unity, love, and now here in this passage, holiness and truth. So joy, mission, unity, love, holiness, and truth. These last two are in verses 14 through 17. Jesus prays to the Father to sanctify his people. This is the holiness that we've been talking about. This is a mark. This is a thing that distinguishes us. It means to be set apart, not ordinary. We've been set apart out of the world unto our God, that we belong to our God. We've spoken to this already at some length. But I want to deal with the reality of truth. Well, before we go on to just a little bit more about holiness, it's clear from the scripture that our holiness is vital. Um, think about Jesus taught in Luke 6. Some of you were here when Pastor Phelps preached through Luke 6. And he says, how do you know a tree? By its fruit. It's got good fruit. It's a good tree. It's got bad fruit. It's a bad tree. You know, many of you know, you, you recognize an apple. You see an apple on a tree, so that's an apple tree. See a lime on a tree, that's a lime tree. 
telemetry, so forth. We're known by fruit. Well, holiness is what manifests who we are. It's the fruit that we should bear to the glory of God. But holiness, it's not just knowing stuff. You could have uh, a ministry, uh, a master's of divinity. You could have a PhD and you could have five PhDs in all areas of systematic theology. You could have memorized the Gospels. Indeed, one of the the, uh, Soviet dictators had done so. You could have... You could be able to outline all 66 books of the Bible. All such knowledge would be wonderful, but it does not make you holy. The holiness that's called for it is what Jesus is talking about in Luke 9.23. If any man would come after me, he's talking about being a disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's what holiness looks like. You're denying your flesh, and it is your flesh that's to be crucified on the cross or put to death. And who is to do the crucifying? You are. I am. Jesus says, if a man would come after me, a woman, a boy, or girl, let him do the denying and let him take up his cross, that is, die. Deny the flesh, crucify the flesh, and live for the glory of God. This is a walk of holiness. To live for the glory of God. Now, my friends, we cannot do this in and of ourselves. It is by the Spirit, but the Spirit uses the truth of God's Word. It is by the Word of God that we know what holiness is, and it is the Word of God that is the power of God unto salvation. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, and the writer of Hebrews says that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing a bone and marrow, and a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Would we know whether we're thinking and the way we're living is righteous? We use the word as the standard. We must know the truth. I finished my outline for preaching Yesterday, But even last night and this morning as I was thinking about this some more, isn't it remarkable how this all ties together? How does John open? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He's talking about Christ. Who's the Word? Who's this Word of truth that we need? It is Christ. What is the word that the Spirit brings to bear upon us? It is Christ. What is the the word that is sharper than any two-edged sword? It is Christ. When John sees him, and not a literal, but a prophetic vision in in, uh, the book of Revelation, he sees the Christ with a sword coming out of his mouth. He's the word. And if we would grow in holiness, we must be of the word. We must be in the word, grounded in the word. Yes, we need to hear the word preached on the Lord's day. We should meditate upon the word. We should hide it in our hearts. We must be of the word because that is to be of Christ. We know it is by the spirit that we put to death the deeds of the flesh. Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, what? You will die. Think again of Luke 9:23. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. There's that daily dying. If we are going to live according to the flesh, we're going to die. 
But, there's that wonderful but of the gospel. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. And we do that with the word. We must be of the word. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is the truth. Who is the word? What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. That's what we're talking about. Without holiness, you shall not see the Lord. We come in Christ. We come by the word. We live by the word. We're grounded in the word. We build on the word. We breathe the word. We, As Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, we should believe the word. That is what Jesus prayed to the Father that we would be. This has been a major focus in Jesus' prayer back in verse 8. He says, The words of the Father gave the Son, and these words the Son has given to his disciples. And these are the words the disciples received. All that right there. It's the word, the word, the word. <clears throat> and back in verse 6 he says, It is the word that the disciples kept. And the result is that they came to know who Jesus is and the Father whom he manifested to them, what? Through the word that he revealed to them that the Father had given to him. It's the word, the word, the word. Sinclair Ferguson marvelously, helpfully points out there's two chains in Jesus' prayer. Two chains. I think like links together a chain. There's two. The first one has to do with glory. We covered this in the first five verses, but just go back and look at it. Sinclair Ferguson points out there's this chain of glory. Glory belongs to the Father. Glory is given to the Son as a man, the God-man. Glory is given by the Son to the apostles. Glory is seen through the apostles' ministry and by all the disciples, even you and me. We see glory through the apostles' ministry. What is it? The Word. The word of truth. But then this all happened because the word belonged to the Father. And here's the other chain. The word was given. If the word belongs to the Father, the word was given to the Son. The word was given by the Son to the apostles. And the word was given by or through the apostles to all the disciples. Two glorious chains. Whereas is written elsewhere by Peter, God moved holy men of old along by the Holy Spirit to write. So right here, Jesus is declaring the same thing, that the word we have, we receive from the apostles, was given to them by the Son, and it was given to the Son by the Father, even as the Father gave the Son, who is the word, to the church. How can we declare ourselves to be Christians and not be immersed in the word? We must be about the word. If we're going to survive in a world that desires to gobble us up and destroy us, we must be about the word. If we are to grow in holiness, we must be about the word. In John 15, Jesus says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. What is it to abide in Christ? Abide in the word. He is the word. And to have him abiding in us, in, in ourselves, it's to be in the word. And so we see these marks of the church, holiness, of life and living by the truth of God's word. As we wrap up, what we see in this prayer of our blessed Redeemer is a glimpse into his heart. We see Jesus telling us most glorious things. Jesus does not despise to be our Redeemer. He knew he was coming to go to a cross, and he came and he went. He knew that it would be necessary as the God of glory to veil his deity, 
that we would not see it until it was time to reveal it. He knew that it required him to take on our humanity and live as a servant. He knew that even though he was the king of kings, that he would come to serve and not to be served. No one has ever stooped so low as the Lord Jesus Christ to secure our salvation. No one. Jesus walked on the earth and he lived in the world. He knows where we dwell. And he knows what we need. And he knows the dangers we face. And he has prayed to the Father concerning those things. The world hates them, Father. Keep them. The world is against them to destroy them. Father, sanctify them by your truth. What a Savior. What love, what kindness has this great God shown to us. What a compassion that he has for us, even revealed in his prayer from so long ago. My friends, let us hear our Master's prayer and pursue holiness in a bride and our Redeemer. As Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God, to God, what? Which is your reasonable service. And not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Amen? Let us pray. O Lord God Almighty, we acknowledge that we are beset on every side by snares and temptations. And we have great struggles within. But, Father, we rejoice to know that we are not alone, we are not forsaken, that our Redeemer has redeemed us, and he's given us his spirit. He has prayed to the Father on our behalf, and even now he continues to make intercession for us. Lord, as Jesus was about his Father's business, may we be so also about our Father's business the pursuit of holiness for your glory and your honor, that the nations would praise you for your great gospel and that the watchmen would shout and sing together over the great salvation that our God has wrought. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together and sing about the godly man who pursues holiness. Psalm 1 from the Psalter. <clears throat>